season two of the JKR podcast powered by Black Homer Sports. My name is Jay Shriglin and I'm the host. Let's dig into today's episode after a word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the JKR Podcast. My name is Jace Riggling and I'm the host. Today is the third episode of the weekend. Today's episode was actually supposed to be the first episode, first interview with the first Major League Baseball player to come on the podcast. However, since this recording, Los Angeles Dodger top prospect Ryan Pepio, for a friend of the podcast, former podcast guest, he has made his Major League debut. So this sets... Andrew Brown, the guy we're having today, as our second Major League player on the podcast. Andrew, he's played for the St. Louis Cardinals, Colorado Rockies, New York Mets. He actually has a ring for that 2011 World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals. He is also a current D-Bat owner in Texas. Um, owns, he's worked with a couple of facilities, um, owns one already right now. Um, he's got a ton of knowledge to spread, very, very knowledgeable in the game of baseball, lots of great content here. Uh, we discussed just a lot of different things in his career so far. Um, talk about his ejections um, within Major League Baseball games. Talk about the KBO versus Major League Baseball. Talk about homering off Steven Strasburg, you know, MLB All-Star um, on opening day. Um, that was a pretty cool moment for him in his career. Also talk, also talk about his vision for the future with the D-Bat company he owns um, and much more. Um, so let's dig into the episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. And welcome back to the JKR Podcast. Today we have our first former Major League Baseball player on the podcast. We've got former St. Louis Cardinal, Colorado Rocky, New York Met. Also played in the KBO for one season. Oh, we got current D-Bat Melissa owner Andrew Brown on the show. Andrew, super pumped to get you on the show. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Hey, of course. Got a great career going on uh, this past couple of years, so I wanted to make sure to uh, get an interview with you, talk about your career. Uh, so one question I always like to ask everybody as soon as they come on the podcast is, for those who don't know you, how would you introduce yourself? Uh, I am a ex-Major uh, League Baseball player who is currently working with kids uh, every day to get them to further their career, whether it's in baseball or softball, uh, or just to have fun in sports all the way around. Okay. So obviously, let's. I want to dig in a little bit about you playing for Nebraska baseball. Obviously, you were born in Texas. You're in Texas now, but you went to the University of Nebraska. So, what was the reasoning to go to Nebraska, and what was that experience like for you? Oh, let's see. Uh, Nebraska came about uh, while I was at Paris Junior College uh, in Texas. Um, I was having a heck of a sophomore year. Uh, and my junior college coach at the time, Justin Seeley, who's uh, also, I think, an assistant uh, coach right now at Oklahoma State, uh, was had just finished up his career at, at Nebraska. And he was uh, – obviously, we'd been working with each other for two years at PJC, and I was killing it. And he was, he was asking me as letters started coming and people started calling. He was like, hey, what do you know about Nebraska? I was like, honestly, nothing except for their football team. He started laughing. We started watching some highlights. Then just so happened that year was the year that Alex Gordon and Java Chamberlain 
um, Johnny Dorn, uh, a lot of guys that became my teammates, except for Gordo. Um, they went to the college world series in 2005. Um, so it helped, uh, my head, uh, want to go on that visit, take that chance. Uh, but I went out there, they have facilities unlike anybody else in the country. Uh, I mean, even in professional sports, uh, hard to hard pressed to say that there's actually really anybody else out there that has what Nebraska does. Uh, and that's, that's, like I said, that's across professional sports, uh, Nebraska just was leaps and bounds ahead of everybody. Uh, I would imagine they still are. I haven't been back in a while, though. Yeah. So did you end up playing for Nebraska for two seasons, or was it just one before you actually ended up getting drafted in 07? Two years. So I, I, I went there in 2006 and then also in 2007. Okay. So that first year in Nebraska in 06, was there any draft buzz around your name, or was it uh, your senior season in 2007 where that draft buzz started to really pick up? Uh, I think there could have been some draft buzz, but I did not get the opportunity to start right out of the gate. Um, my head or our assistant coach uh, the next year actually told me coming in back into the year that it was between me and one of the other guys, one of my good friends, Luke Dorsett. Um, he got the nod. He was a junior college All-American. I was just an all-star uh, and he got the nod, uh, went out and crushed it, got drafted in the sixth round. Um, and then I got a chance to play that my junior year once he got hurt. So just that cli- typical cliche, um, you got to wait your turn. And then when you get the opportunity, you try and make the most of it. Yeah. So that final season in Nebraska in 07, before you were drafted, can you kind of take us through your final college season leading up to the draft when you started talking to teams and what was going through your mind as the draft was coming up? Oh man, you're asking for a long time ago, but uh, good memories, obviously. Um, playing in Nebraska was a lot of fun. Uh, we were we were really really talented that year. Uh, my senior year, we were in the top, I want to say top twenty the entire year, um, with a with a pretty pretty good group, uh, and we went out and had a lot of fun. Got to uh, regional finals. I started getting a lot of. I, I mean, there wasn't really buzz, I guess. I, I knew that I was going to get a chance. Didn't know at what round. I thought I was going to get drafted much higher. Did not work out. Um, and then from there, went on to just playing. Uh, we got to a regional final, and I was supposed to go to a, 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 a tryout, or I guess a little showcase, which I didn't even know what team it was for. Uh, Seely, like, once again, was handling, talking to a lot of people. Um for us as we were in the middle of the season and still trying to finish out uh, playing going forward. But he, uh, he, he talked to, I guess the Cardinals, I had had like 15, 16 different letters from all different kinds of teams. Uh, Talked to a lot of different people. Uh, But while we were playing, I missed that. I missed that showcase. Uh, We ended up going to a regional final against Arizona state uh, in 2007 and then we and and then went on to lose to that Arizona State team where it was they were super duper talented. That was uh, Brett Wallace, Ike Davis, uh, Kyle Rollinger. You had uh, the shortstop phenom who turned pitcher Mike Leake. I mean that was uh, they went on to, they they had some uber talented uh, players uh, in that team. And they, they, they mopped the floor with us pretty handily, but uh, that was the end of my, my college uh, playing career, which was perfectly fine because at the time I was ready to I was ready to move on, I felt like, to uh, get the chance. And we, I didn't get it. I talked to a lot of scouts on the way home. Um, 
told me I was going to get the call that first day uh, and, and, and everything. Uh, and that was only a couple of days later that the draft was happening since we ended up playing. Um, but got home, watched the first couple of days, and nothing happened. So, uh, so obviously, those first couple of days, you're ex- expected to get picked, and that didn't happen. And then you get drafted in the 18th round. So what's going through your mind as you're not getting picked in those early rounds like you initially thought? And then when you did get that call, where were you? And then what was going through your mind at that point? Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously I was a little, I was a little upset. Uh, I stopped watching the draft after day one. Uh, well, I watched most all of day one actually, because uh, if it had happened, that would have been way better than I expected, um, which would have been really cool. Um, getting to watch some, some friends and, and people I played against go and be happy for them to get the opportunity. Uh, was amazing to, to have that chance to get to know people who are getting drafted, be in that, in that place is, is just an honor. Uh, but then like, like you said, it, it, it does, it, it gets to you a little bit. So the next day didn't watch anything, just went, went about my day. It was actually with my dad. Uh, and we were out running some errands, um, uh, and his transmission had actually just dropped out in his, in his truck. So we had pulled up to a uh, auto body place to get it, get his truck worked on. And next thing you know, I get a phone call from St. Louis Cardinals saying I had been drafted uh, and everything. And that was uh, an amazing feeling to know that I'd just been taken. But I, like I said, I didn't even realize the Cardinals were interested. I think I'd fill out one questionnaire and that was it. Uh, the questionnaires back then, I think I filled out one for almost every single team. So that didn't feel like anything special at the time. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the Cardinals had drafted two of the guys from my team the year before. So it was pretty nice to know that I was going to be going and be trying to catch these two guys that were right ahead of me. Yeah. So how, after, after you got that call, after you were drafted, how long was it until you were heading down to Florida to go to some extended spring training ball, of course, and then uh, just fall ball at the major league facility for the first time? extended spring training golf course <laughs> that's funny uh i mean we were kind of in near golf course we were i was extremely lucky we were in west palm beach uh and then right there at roger dean stadium uh it went really really fast uh, i want to say within three to four days packed my stuff back up again and flew out to florida and we began the journey of spring training um for extended for about five six days as everybody started to show up and then they got an eye. They put everybody in a group and, and got to kind of weed us out and figure out where we were going to go. If you're an older guy, you kind of went to an extended or uh, an advanced short season if you came from college or if you were a higher draft pick uh, and or depending on your age, then they would send you younger. And then they just start. I mean, it was then it was a constant shuffle. It was yeah. pretty interesting how that how the whole dynamic of minor league baseball really uh, it happens. Yeah. So at this point in your career, did you did you enter the draft with an advisor slash agent or was it later in your career that you actually picked up an agent? Uh, I did have an advisor. He he didn't really do much for me because he had some higher he had some higher uh, higher guys, which was perfectly fine. Um, And I didn't need much because I went like I said, 18th round. There's not much there's not much negotiating leverage. There's no power. There's no nothing. Uh, so he didn't do much uh, for me at the time, which was uh, I, there's like he can't he can't do anything. I know this now. Um, but then uh, later down the road, he ended up taking a job uh, with a different company and sold off his players to a different deal. The ones that he actually uh, 
was going to get money back from. I was not one of those players at the time, and it would have taken a long time to get that money back on me. Um, but then, so my dad became my agent um, and helped me out through my minor league career until I think I got to my second year in double A. Uh, and that's when everything started to uh, come, got, kind of get a little bit more uh, of a better picture. Okay. So once you're in double A for that second season, your dad was like, hey, let's pass on the agent range to somebody else. What was the process of picking another agent? Were there agents reaching out to you? Um, or were yeah. you mostly doing the reaching out to them? No, at that time, uh, they had started to come to me a little bit. Um, and I had got my, my, my second agent at the time. Uh, my dad was, he wasn't really, he didn't care. Because uh, once again, there was no negotiating. There's no nothing for him. He was, he, he was lucky enough and in a good enough place to be able to help me financially uh, with living gear, uh, cleats, bats, batting gloves, whatever I needed. Uh, to make sure that I was able to, to do my job and uh, not worry about it. Yeah. Um, and that's what agents do. Um, but he was able to do that for me. Um, and then once I got going in double A in my that second year, I think the, it was two, my second year was 2008, 2009. Yeah. Uh, the same year I broke my hand at the beginning of that year. I was, I think I was neck and neck with Mike Moustakis for home runs and RBIs. And then I broke my hand uh, and that year, Mike Moustakis went on to set or to hit the minor league, I think, lead the minor leagues in home runs with like 37 home runs or something. And I was one behind him before I broke my hand. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was we were we were going neck and neck. And then I had some people come out and, and they started asking a bunch of questions. And, and <coughs> the guy who owns DBET uh, ended up uh, setting up my meeting with this this agent and he came and saw me uh wine and dine me took good care of me for for a couple good years yeah so did you end up stick the agent that you chose at that point in your career that stage did you stick with him for the rest of your career or did you end up having another agent before you ended up retiring no i had i stuck with him actually until i got to the big leagues uh and then i had my first uh time i got designated so he was he was really really good at what he did until it got time to understanding what goes into doing the baseball side of of, of the job because uh, he was actually a golf agent at the beginning of his career which was perfectly fine I knew I was taking a uh, taking a chance on him and he was taking a chance on me um, because we were both helping each other out he was trying to get his feet wet into the into baseball and I needed I needed some help. Um, but once I got designated that first time is when I actually needed to have somebody who understood what was going on uh, and could tell me, hey, you just got designated. You need you're, you're going to be you got to know what's going on with um, being claimed. What's the what's the claim process? How many days is it? What, what can they do? What can't they do? If, do I have to accept? Do I have to move on? Uh, a lot of things that most people don't recognize goes into it. I had no idea. Uh, my agent had no idea, which was perfectly fine. Like I said, but we, I needed to know, I needed to know. So at that point I reached out to my cousin who had just been drafted by the uh, White Sox in the fifth round out of the university of Miami. Um, so he was, his agency uh, came in or I talked to his agent um, and his agent literally within two minutes of being on a phone was like, Hey, you play baseball and your agent didn't know this. He goes, 
So if you if you get if you get designated, you have ten days to do this, to do this, to do this, and he laid it out in two seconds. He goes, he goes, you just got designated. Your agent doesn't know this. He goes, give me give me two hours. We're gonna do some digging on you and see if we would like to represent you, and then you can make your decision on if you want to keep your agent or move on with us. Um, at that point, <laughs> it's pretty easy. Um, like when you when you get somebody who can lay out the lay of the land and explain what's actually happening to your about to happen to your career. Uh, in less than two seconds without flinching it made me feel real comfortable uh and they called me back and he was like yeah we'll represent you not even not even a question yeah uh which was which was awesome because i was still an eight my, once again 18th round pick i had no leverage no no money into myself so they knew they weren't going to get any return on me until i until i'd signed a better deal um and or actually signed a a deal for that matter uh to be in the big leagues or to go overseas or do any of that so they didn't they didn't make any money on me whatsoever until i went overseas to korea which uh to them is even better like they were they were amazing to me the agency themselves at the time was um the legacy group which uh is now I think been since bought and sold. And then my main agent works, I think, or I had two different agents. I had a middleman who I think works with Wasserman now. And then another guy um, who is the head of the Vayner sports baseball side now. Okay. So how are you able to build a relationship with those guys? Uh, was it more of a, like a friend and agent slash relationship, or was it more of just like, Hey, here, like the business side of things? Uh, I mean, my, so my agent agent was strictly business pretty much. Uh, I mean, we talked a lot, um, my last year going into Korea and then a lot over the last, well, I guess the last three years that they represented me when I was with the, the Mets, uh, into when I went to Korea, um, and ultimately to when I retired, uh, because we were constantly on the phone trying to get deals done with Japan, um, back and forth. I've been trying to go to Japan overseas from 20 I guess 20, 2013, 14, 15, I wanted to be in Japan uh, was my ultimate goal. And Korea came in 15 and then in 16, wanted to go back to Korea. They ended up wanting to go a different way. Um, but yeah, the, the relationship between my agents was, was pretty uh, easy, actually. Um, the main guy was, he was awesome. Uh, he, he didn't really have to deal with him much and unless uh, it came down to business and contract negotiations and figuring out where we were trying to go. And then my middleman guy, he, he literally took care of me if I needed anything. He got me, we had contacts for everything. I could call a company and say, hey, I needed this. They'd send it out. If I wanted reservations, I could call and get reservations. If I, and then when I went to overseas, uh, and play in the Dominican Republic. My agency took good care of me. I mean, I had my own personal driver. He he took me to restaurants, helped me order food, made sure I was going to safe places. Um, wasn't going to put me into any bad situation possible. Uh, and when you're overseas, that's a really nice peace of mind uh, to know that you can just focus on baseball and somebody's actually looking out for you. Yeah. So once you retired, did you keep a relationship with both those guys that were representing you at the time? Or was it kind of just like, hey – I'm retired. I'm doing. I'm not playing baseball anymore. So let's. We're gonna end this relationship. What was that like? Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a little bit in between. So my middle the middleman guy, his name is Mike. I we we stayed in contact and we still do. I I, I through Instagram. I, he sees my family. I see his family. 
uh, we comment on each other's stuff. We talk uh, every couple months. Uh, we shoot each other messages if I have questions about stuff. Once again, I'm still in the baseball business. So if I have people that I need, that I think that these guys can help with, uh, or that if they're looking for representation, um, I've I've actually called both of them uh, and and offered players up and said, hey, you might want to look at this guy if you fit your mold. Awesome. If not, cool. Uh, I don't know, and so I don't I don't normally pass people on uh, unless I know them personally uh, as well because I don't. I don't really like to put my name on people unless I've worked with them or understand who they are. Uh, it's just because it's, it's a lot harder of a job. It really is to, to go after people and figure that out and, and, and do that and figure out who you're going to represent um, and who's going to represent your company. Uh, it, it's a, it's a hard thing. Yeah. So obviously, obviously now being owner of a DBAT facility, are you in contact with a lot of agents for maybe, I know you talked about sometimes you'll, you'll talk to those two guys that represented you in terms of some guys that you work with, but are you in contact with other agents as well as some of your players are like, Hey, can you help me with getting some reputation or not? Or is it mainly just those two guys that you're in contact with? Uh, I mean, on the agent side, I don't really talk to many agents anymore. Uh, I, like I said, those guys were mine. Uh, and then I have friends who become agents and, and everything. And I still have friends who are just not getting out of the game. Uh, and trying to figure out where they're going. Uh, I mean, with the DBAD side, there's not much uh, in, intermingling unless there's uh, players coming through that I know that are going to be looking for that style or uh, some, some, it's mutual friends that come through and do everything. Or if I wanted to bring in, uh, do a super big event um, and try and tie in some some big name people, we might call, I might call on one of my old agents and say, hey, we need to look at trying to figure out why or how we can get these guys to show up and make it make it a bigger event for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's dig into your minor league baseball experience just a little bit. So obviously you've gotten to play in a variety of different cities. I know Las Vegas, Springfield were some names that I came across. But just what was your favorite place to play throughout your career minor league wise and what was the reasoning for that? Uh, probably Springfield, uh, Missouri is, was probably my top mainly cause they, it was like being at home. Um, I had my wife's, one of my wife's best friends, uh, grew up in Springfield. Their parents actually gave me their entire basement basically to myself. Um, so I, I didn't have rent. I got to save some money, which was really nice in minor league baseball, which is unheard of. Uh, I had a family that was that that I didn't have to worry about uh, trying to pimp me out for any reasons whatsoever. They're just genuine people uh, and great family, uh, great people. We are we're still in contact with their family. The parent, I'm, I, I mean, I my family, my my wife and I uh, took got them vacations on uh lake of the ozarks almost every single year for them offering everything up for us to be able to go do everything i mean we've just it's i feel like we're another extension of their family um they brought us into their family is what it was uh which was awesome and but they've been they've been a part of our of our lives for let's see since college so 2006 2006 we they've been their family's been a part of our lives uh in one way shape or another so yeah, it's been a long time um, and a great relationship. So it, it really was, it, it was like being at home and then Springfield was awesome. I was there for two and a half years. I got to be in, I got to play in the Texas league. So I got to come home, stay in my own bed eight times a year, uh, which most players never get the opportunity to do as well. Um, 
yeah, I was, I was extremely lucky. Yeah. So you got the opportunity to play uh, minor league baseball for three different organizations. Obviously the Cardinals that drafted you got to play in the minors a little bit for the Rockies and Mets. Was there any big differences that you saw between organizations about how just the minor league teams were ran in general? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge difference in the way that, uh, that you're, that the organizations are run from, I mean, it's hard to put a top down because I can, I can only speak from the Cardinals side of coming from the lower levels and watching how they, how they really taught the game and, and, and made it to where you were going to be successful. Uh, other organizations that I was a part of were AAA at that point. So AAA is a little bit more of the wild, wild west. It's really, really hard to uh, go in and set any rules and regulations, uh, especially when I was there. Like I came in, I'd already had the big league time. So when I was with the Rockies, uh, I was back and forth, big league, AAA. So when I was in the minor leagues, the it, it wasn't that I didn't, I didn't really care what I was doing as much. Uh, I just needed to make sure that I was doing stuff for baseball. And that's all I cared about was get my baseball done so I could get back to the big leagues. Um, and then Vegas, it was – most people think that playing in Vegas, because uh, that's where we were for, for the, with the Mets, would have been crazy. But I had, I had uh, a child uh, who was young, so I we didn't go out. We didn't party. Uh, my wife and I were – I'm literally in bed early every night trying to get as much sleep as possible. When you got a young kid, you got to sleep and uh, do that as much as you possibly can. So we got to eat some decent food. Uh, but then it was all about family as uh, really when that started taking off for me. So Vegas was really cool. It as a cool city, but it was 130 degrees. So it was, it was a different type of place to be. So you, like you said, you played in the higher levels for all three organizations that you played for and then the lower levels for the Cardinals as well. Um, so is there a difference in just the day-to-day routine when you're playing in the lower levels compared to the double-A, triple-A? Yes. Um, by, mainly because I, at that point in time, I was more established in my own uh, life and and everything. So my, my routine was already drastically different. Um, let's see, my first couple years was still sleeping in as much as I possibly could and then crawling out of bed at two going doing this doing my stuff at the field uh, and then going to bed at two or three at night uh later at the end of at the end i was uh let's see once i got to triple a i knew i was up at eight thirty eight to eight thirty almost every morning um and i was going to the gym i was getting active early in the morning I was getting to the field early, getting my early work done super early, and I figured out how to manage my workload to not overdo the volume, knowing that we had to play 100, 150 games or 144 games, I think it was, in the minors versus the, the like the lower levels. Never got to where you were actually playing that many games because uh, I was we were bouncing back and forth and everything else. But then towards the end, I got to where I was playing 140 to 150 games. <laughs> Uh, it's a lot of baseball and understanding how to manage your body and, and figure out how to take care of it. So it doesn't, when it does want to shut down at a game hundred, uh, you know how to start to combat that and know where, where to begin to, to work around it before it happened. Yeah. So initially you were called up in 2011 to go play for the Cardinals for a couple of games to end that season. Um, so how did you receive the news? And then what was going through your mind when you got that, when you got the news that you're going to go play some major league baseball? 
uh, I can still see it. Um, I mean, I was crushing, crushing the Pacific Coast League in 2011. Uh, I want to say I was hitting 367 uh, double-digit homers, nearly 60 RBIs uh, at the time. And we were in New Orleans on a four-day trip, so I had a little uh, – a little bag, like a little duffel bag with just some shorts. And I think I brought one pair of shoes, a couple pairs of underwear, and that was about it. It's polos. Um, went out, crushed the first game. I think I went three for five, uh, just continuing to roll. The next day, get to the ballpark as usual um, and go through a, a normal day. Uh, and then right before the game, or about an hour before the game started, the manager came out and made an adjustment to the lineup and I was no longer in it. Uh, everybody started to buzz, and I was like, oh, I don't know why I'm not in the lineup. Oh, well, I'll just coach first base and take it as a day off. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. I went out and coached first base that first inning uh, as we were visitors in New Orleans playing the Zephyrs before they became the baby cakes. And uh, we, I think we put up seven runs or nine runs in that bottom or the top of the first. I uh, came back in, and then uh, my manager was like, hey, he was like, Brownie, because uh, I think you've scored enough runs for us here. Uh, you need to go inside, get your stuff together. You're, you're heading up to St. Louis, or you're, you're going to play with the big boys. And I was like, what? Was like, yeah, uh, y'all are, you've got a plane to catch at 5 a.m. in the morning to Milwaukee for a day game uh, before y'all head to Washington. I was like, holy crap. Gave everybody hugs, went into the clubhouse, uh, kind of gathered myself, went in, went back underneath the bleachers, cried for a minute. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's your ultimate dream come true. Uh, then made my phone calls to my wife, my dad, my mom. Uh yeah, and then I rushed to J.C. Penny, got the clubby to take me to J.C. Penny. Tried to buy a suit off the rack. The guy at the J.C. Penny was like, "No, sir, you, you, we, it'll take a, at least ten days to get this tailored to you." I was like, "No, dude, you don't understand." Uh, I was like, uh, "You're selling me the suit now. If you don't want to, I'm going right across the street to the next place, which was like a Dillard's or something." I was like, "If you don't want to sell me a suit, Dillard's will sell me a suit. I have to have a suit." in the next 45 minutes before you guys close. I was like, I'm buying shoes, socks, belt, jacket, pants, shirt, and a tie. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and I walked away with an entire suit because I wasn't going to be the guy to show up in khaki shorts and a polo and a little duffel bag. Because um, like I said, I, I, I normal, and, and that's where the other part of everything changes. When your first time getting called up, you have no idea. You're not packed for it. You're not ready. Um, and then after that trip, uh, every time we went on the road, I was always ready. Uh, you never know when you get you could get called up or not. So we we always traveled in suits, uh, and I had extra suits, extra clothes, extra shoes, extra everything. So I was never going to get stuck in that part. Like I had to borrow money from my friend uh, to be able to go shopping to get jeans and some button ups so that I could actually. Uh, and I think I had to buy a pair of shoes. Uh, so I would look, not look like a bum. Uh, and then even my first payday in the major leagues was minor league paycheck. Uh, I didn't get my first paycheck until I was back in the minor leagues. So I, I was up for two weeks and got a minor league paycheck uh, living a big league life. So you talk about payday. So how does payday work for the major leagues? Do they get paid every 
every other week, like most most yep. people in the in the yep. other just yep, just like everybody else, you get paid well, most like most people um, every two weeks for the time that you're working. Okay, so and is that for minor a, league baseball it, as well? Yep, it's a seasonal job, so you don't get paid during spring training. Um, you literally only get paid for the time you play. Okay, all right. So you head to Milwaukee for that that first major league game that you're going to be a part of. You get to Milwaukee, and then you head to Washington, you said. So could you take us through those first couple days, heading to Miller Park for that first time as a major league ball player, being on the first plane ride? Just what was going through your mind at that point? And just can you take us through those first couple days? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's – I don't, I, there's not many words to describe it other than just everything you could imagine it to be. Uh, you've got everybody's pretty much gone to a field and walked in as your first time, and it's a massive stadium, and you're looking down. Uh, but then I got to be the I got to be the ant on the field and look up. Uh, and then when you're walking into the stadium for the first time, you're not going in as a normal person. You're going in and uh, they're driving you in on a cart with your bags uh, and your bats, drive you straight up to the clubhouse. You walk in, uh, you got a massive clubhouse with all the big name dudes. I mean, the Cardinals had Albert Pujols, uh, Adam Wainwright. We had uh, Matt Holliday, Lance Berkman. Uh, I mean, the, the Yachty. Uh, the names go on and on and on. They they were their future Hall of Famers that were my teammates for the first day, uh, and and I was extremely blessed to be in that in that organization. Get that that chance. I got to play for Tony La Russa. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, that's that's something that not uh, it's it's something that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. Yeah. So that that's actually gonna lead me up to my next question. So obviously you got to play for a couple of weeks with those guys. Pujols, Holiday, Berkman, like you said, Yachty, Wainwright, uh, Larusa as your manager, and that was a season that the Cardinals ended up winning the World Series in 2011. So, were you able to establish some relationships with some of those guys? And then, in the end, did you end up getting a ring for that 2011 season? Uh, yes, I do have a ring, um, and yes, I did establish some some uh, rapport with those guys. It just depended on who. So like Albert and I, Albert remembered me. Uh, he was the machine at the time. So you got to remember he had his blinders on doing his thing. Um, uh, he didn't speak a word to me as a teammate until I got my first hit and drove in my first RBI, which came in the same swing, luckily. Uh, and it was in my second start. Um, so he, and the first thing he said, he just said, congratulations, kid. And he, I mean, that was, he was the machine. So I, I was lucky enough to get to watch him go through his daily routines from training and then get to be his teammate and all that cool stuff was, was awesome. Uh, but I mean, getting to be around Lance Berkman, uh, Matt Holiday, uh, I don't, I didn't get to talk too much. So I talked to Lance during that time. Uh, Matt and I have, have since seen each other a couple of times. He's coaching at Oklahoma state with Justin Seeley. Who's one of my friends, uh, still to this day. Um, and but yeah, I mean, I, the players. There were some, the, a lot of the younger guys that were on the team. Uh, I still, we're still good friends with and talk to consistently. Yeah. So you played eleven games for the Cardinals that 2011 season. Then you went on to play 46 games for the Rockies that next year. So how did? What was that transition from the Cardinals to the Rockies? Did you get released or traded? What What exactly was that that change from Cardinals to the Rockies that next season? So I actually was designated. Uh, game the night before game one of the World Series. Um, 
So for anybody who doesn't understand what that process is, I was on the 40-man roster. I was not with the big league club. They only called up, uh, I want to say, five guys to finish out the season in September. Instead of expanding the roster to a full 40, they only had, I think, 32, 36, 30, or 34, somewhere in there. Um, but either way, uh, I was at home. They decided to call, or they they activated Lance Lynn off the sixty day disabled list, uh, so he could pitch in the World Series. Uh, so I was designated before Game One. I got woken up by my mother actually, uh, and this is comes back to where my agent didn't know what was going on. He didn't understand the situation, but my mom called me at seven o'clock in the morning. I was like, Andrew, I, I'm reading this article. It says you were designated for assignment. What does that mean? I was like, Mom, I'm waking up what are you talking about? I don't, I don't even, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. And then I, so I stumbled to my phone, picked it up, read the, she sent it to me, read it. And I was like, well, uh, I gotta go. <laughs> hung up the phone, hung up on my mother, uh, which most people probably don't do. Proceeded to call my agent. He had no idea what to do. Then, it, then I went into a frenzy and I was like, I told my wife, uh, I was like, all right, uh, I'm no longer a cardinal. Uh, at least at the time, that's what I thought. Uh, I was like, I'm no longer a Cardinal. They don't want me. They don't like me. I'm not I'm not on the roster. I got to go. So I went to the gym. I was like, I got to throw some weight around. I got to do something to get out my aggression, my energy. Uh, but at the time, I was still – that's when I made the phone calls, got to my, my cousin's agent. He, and I talked to him before I even got into the gym. So I lived only five minutes from my gym. So it wasn't like it was in a, a 15, 30-minute drive to, to my gym. Um so it, it was pretty fast uh, that I figured all this stuff out and made myself feel calm a little bit. But even at that, my agent still had no idea um, at my first agent. But then at that point in time, like uh, my, and I told the new guy, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go with you guys. I just want to see when he actually figures out uh, what happens with all this. So within two days I had been, I, I had them been claimed. I got a call from the Rockies, um, and and they were like, yep, uh, we actually just claimed you off of the off waivers. You're now a Colorado Rocky on the 40 man, uh, and you're going to come to. And I got to go to spring training for my or big league spring training for my first time because uh, remember with the Cardinals uh, who I was playing behind, so there was no chance of me going to big league spring training until you crack that that code uh, to get up. So it would have been the next year that I would have got my first chance to go to a big league spring training. But the Rockies were my first year. Um, but yeah, it was it was intense. Uh, it was a it was a weird eight eight days. Uh, I mean, I got a ring. I got I I was going. I was supposed to go to the World Series game and watch my uh, my wife's grandmother ended up passing away. So we ended up missing the World Series games in Texas, which were in my backyard. Um, because we were actually up in Indiana. Um, it was Craig's, Craig's grandmother as well um, that had passed away uh, at that right in the, at the World Series time. So, Okay. Okay, so obviously you ended up going to the Rockies that 2012 season, like you said. Um, one interesting thing that I saw, I was just doing some research on you, is that you actually got ejected from a game in that 2012 season. So, yeah, the very, last, the very last game of the season in the eighth and the, in the top of the eighth. Okay, so what, so take us through that. What ha- what happened there? Uh, I uh, I want to say I, I I want it. I got hit in the wrist. Uh, to make a long story short, I got hit in the wrist by a ninety-five mile an hour fastball up and then uh, the umpire 
I could see his face. I can't remember his name. Um, I'd had him for crap four or five years in the minor leagues uh, easily. And he started, he broke into the big league same time I did. Um, and so we knew each other. I checks, I like I had started to come in cause the guy was throwing 95 miles an hour. So I started to move and then I saw it come in. So I stopped, I, it hit my right wrist. Uh, if you can Im- put your hands together, like you're holding a bat and it hit my wrist right under where your, your left thumb would be sitting under the bottom of your right hand. If you're right-handed. Uh, and so right on that skinny part of your wrist, I had a ball hit me there 95. I took my batting glove off. You could see it turn purple, red, uh, black, blue, everything immediately. Cause the blood was rushing to it. He called it a foul ball. Um, and I, and I've proceeded to tell him that that's not even physically, like it's not even physically possible for it hit the knob and then to get to my hand and it to be black and blue of that, that sort that fast. Uh, and, and he, he didn't, he didn't want to hear it from me. My manager came out, which was, uh, Jim Tracy at the time, which I love Jim Tracy to death. Uh, he had one of the hardest jobs I've ever seen in my life, uh, that year, uh, with the Rockies, uh, just with what they were trying out with the experiments that year. Um, but Jim came out and fought for me, uh, then nothing happened after I I yelled at the umpire. Like I said, I'd known him, so I yelled at him. Then he proceeded to call another bad pitch. Guy uh, guy threw a slider way off the plate away, and he called strike two. And I and I just turned and looked at him. I was like, "Well, this is this at bat's over with." And he goes, "What?" And I was like, "You just you, I was like, I already got hit once. You just you just did this to me." I was like, this is over with. And I just started barking at him. And then the next pitch, I think I, I, I think I flailed at one even worse. And then I, then I turned at him and pointed and yelled uh, some choice words. He, he threw me out uh, and I walked straight up to the clubhouse. Uh, I mean, it was the last game of the season in the eighth. It's like, it wasn't even, I think the game was over literally within 15 minutes after I got thrown out. Okay. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a pretty cool experience though, just to get it thrown out of a major league baseball game. But well, I bet so. I so here's little, uh, your your a little good fact. I have actually been thrown out of a game of every single season ex- that I, of baseball uh, that I played professionally, except for 2015 in Korea, and I should have uh, multiple times, but they did not throw me out. Okay. So, um, and then even in 16, 16, I didn't. Uh, and then I I guess I didn't. The next time I coached. Oh, I take that back. I did coach in 2016. I was coaching 11 U baseball. I got kicked out of an 11 U baseball game when I retired. Uh, my, I don't have, I didn't have a kid on the team. I was coaching it and got uh, an umpire at 11 U told me that I needed to learn the game and I lost it. Yeah. Well, I mean, man, I mean, obviously playing in the major leagues and an umpire is telling you that, I mean, there's some, something wrong with him if he's telling you that. So there's probably, probably good reason there to get thrown out of a game. So well, correct. So, if you're looking back at your major league career, playing for those three teams, uh, what what are some just some of your favorite memories? Just looking back on your major league career. I mean, obviously, uh, my major league career. Oh wow, my first home run uh, as a professional, not even in the big leagues, just as a professional, came off of my colleague, one of my my Nebraska teammates, um, Tony Watson, who actually just retired. Uh, I think he had a 14, 15 year career in the big leagues. Uh, 
but man, we played together for two years at Nebraska. Um, I actually, I had really good numbers against him uh, over the course of the years because he was with the Pirates before and then he ended up getting moved around to a couple different teams. But uh, I hit a home, my very first professional home run against him. Then he hit me the next at bat. Uh, we were, I mean, I laughed it, I laughed it off because like I said, we were, we were friends. And I think uh, I hit a couple, two or three more home runs against him in the big leagues. Um, Gosh, those playing against my friends uh, were the cool parts. Uh, so that was that was one of my good ones. Then getting to some of the really cool, uh, obviously my first home run, I hit onto Waveland Avenue out of uh, Wrigley Field, my very first major league home run. Um, then I had a walk-off hit with the Mets. I got to start an opening day game at City Field in front of 40,000 plus people in New York and I hit a three three run homer against Strasburg on opening day uh being a Texas boy I got to take the Texas Hall of Famer Josh Beckett I I took him deep in a game he was with the when he was with the Dodgers I've taken Chris Sale deep uh I mean I got I got everything a, a player I think could imagine done in the game of baseball uh minus making signing a multi-million dollar contract yeah and I went overseas I, I went overseas I got to play in J Japan uh in spring training over there I played in Korea I played in Venezuela I played in Dominican uh I've I, I've been extremely blessed to have been to got to do what I was was doing um and able to do what I was was able to do yeah so you talk about playing in those foreign leagues overseas uh, let's dig into the one season you played in the KBO so obviously those foreign leagues overseas are much different than the MLB minor league baseball. Um, so, but in your opinion, probably what are some of the key differences that you saw just by your own mind? Um, and just overall, what was that experience is like for you? Uh, they manage a game differently uh, overseas. They, at the time the games were probably uh, at least 30 to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour and a half longer than the games in the U S because they had, a, they would literally have anywhere from, each team would have seven to nine pitching changes a game. Um, so they micromanaged the game differently. They would use players differently. Um, the volume of practice was different. Um, it was just a different mindset. Uh, and then the cultural differences, it's, it's, it, it was an awesome experience to go overseas and, and to get to do that, see, see life through a different lens. Uh, I mean, most Major League Baseball players get to see other people come into our country and they're the outsiders. They have to figure it out. Uh, but to go into their country and, and I, and I was in their shoes, I had an interpreter. I had to, I had to eat, I had to eat food that I wasn't used to. I had to figure out how to get around. I had to do all that, that stuff. It's a, it's, it's a humbling experience and an awesome experience. Um, and I was blessed to have been able to take my, my kids and my wife, they got to experience, uh, overseas. Uh, it, the game is different. They, they do, they just they, they have a different passion for it. I mean, Korea. If uh, a lot of people got to experience it on TV during uh, COVID uh, with ESPN, if you got to see people cheering and chanting and dancing and and going crazy in the stands, uh, it really is that way. I mean, they they don't stop chanting. It's an awesome experience. They bring their own liquor. They have uh, totally different types of cuisine, food. Uh, they have cheerleaders. They've got dance eaters. They've got 
uh, water cannons that they shoot in a certain time of the year. There's like a water month uh, in Korea that they'll do that stuff. Uh, it's it's a, it's an awesome experience. Yeah. Um, so obviously you played in the KBO season in 2015, I believe, and then signed with the Angels in 16 and decided to retire. So let's dig into your life after baseball. So obviously you went straight to working for DBAT pretty much directly after retiring. So how did you get connected with the DBAT organization? So I've known the owner of the company, uh, the overall company, since he first had his very first location. Uh, he opened it in 1998. He actually used to be an instructor at a different facility uh, back where I grew up in Addison uh, called Eight Airs. Uh, a guy named Steve Eight Air, who was kind of a pioneer uh, in our in our world here, in, at least in Texas, uh, at least in North Texas, for batting cages. He had a huge warehouse with a bunch of machines, a bunch of extra cages, did lessons, did open open cages for you to come in, and it was climate controlled. Um, and so you never had to worry. As long as you could get there, you could, and, and he was open, you could hit. Uh, so it was the beginning of the end for indoor training, at least uh, in my end uh, industry, because now the guy who took that has taken it and kind of flipped it on its edge. And now he's got the biggest worldwide uh, baseball, softball training uh, facilities. So he turned it in, he, he took what he had started in, in, uh, kind of took over um had one facility i called him and said hey uh, i've been a part of your family for 20 years he took care of me with bats gloves whatever i needed as a player i mean he sold my he took care of me and my dad uh with bats so like when people ask me what wood i swung in, in major league baseball i swung d-bat wood uh, D-Bat used to be uh, MLB certified. Uh, Clayton Kershaw used to swing it. There, uh, I mean, A-Rod swung it. Rafael Palmero swung it. There's a D-Bat wood, uh, wood bat in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, there's, there, it's, it's, it was, it wasn't as, as small of a brand uh, with wood as it once is, now, or as it is now, because it was there. Um, but they, he took care of me. I, I mean, at one time I had, I had a buy buy six get six free deal so i could buy six bats get six for free uh, i don't know how many people he did that for but i he really helped me and my father out uh especially when you're having to buy your own wood if you want to swing something other than just your run-of-the-mill cheap wood that's gonna break every couple swings um but i called him and said hey man i'm i'm retiring from baseball um i need a job <laughs> i don't know what but he was like he goes, okay, uh, when are you coming home? I was like, I'm driving home tomorrow. And he goes, okay, uh, give me a couple of days. Uh, I'll call you back. It took him less than six hours. He had made a couple of phone calls and he said, hey, somebody's looking for uh, a possibility of an instructor and uh, to learn how to run the business and be a GM in the next six months to help do that. And I was like, awesome. Uh, so I met him. I mean, I called a couple people. I called John Buck, who was another one of my ex-teammates uh, with the Mets. Um, he kind of took me under his wing. Uh, I've actually started repping his product, which was Buck Athletics. We sold it was a glove protector, uh, baseball stuff, and we got it. Took it from a couple. He was in like two two D bats, and I think by the time he ended up selling his his company to Lizard Skins, uh, he by the time when he left, he was in forty. Uh, so we got him into a 38 new locations, uh, got his revenue up. 
he had an exit, uh, which was awesome for him. Uh, I mean, so I've got into sales, learned business, uh, coached a little bit, not really, uh, tried to buy, we added $500,000 in revenue in two and a half year. And when I say we, it was the team. We had an awesome team of people, uh, that really just kicked ass and took names. Uh, and we had fun serving the community and making sure that they were, that they were the ones who got everything out of it. Uh, they, they told us what they wanted. We tried to deliver uh, we grew his business roughly 45% in two years. So almost $500,000 in two years. Um, and then I tried to buy it. Uh, didn't work out. And so when that happened, um, I ended up jumping into the coaching world, became a hitting coach with TCS. Uh, and so I, at that point, I was coaching a post-grad baseball team where we trained them five days a week. They played a, a full junior college schedule in the fall, a full junior college schedule in the spring. Uh, oh, wait, until COVID hit that first year. Uh, but at the same time that happened, I had already bought uh, a DBAT location with it with a friend, and we signed on the dotted line. Two weeks later, had to shut the doors. So not only were we getting our, 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 I got my wish as an owner, uh, but then I had my first uh, wish as an owner of dealing with a mass uh, catastrophe and COVID shutting down the state of Texas. Yeah, so you, that, that initial DBAT facility that you signed the dotted line for, uh, what was the process of becoming a GM at a separate DBAT facility to actually signing that dotted line and becoming the owner of that first DBAT facility that you Bought. Oh, so so how did I become the GM uh, before I tried to buy it? Or yeah, so before, so what was before? what was the process of you being a general manager of the one in Allen Allen to your first DBAT facility that you bought? When was it that you were like, hey, I want to buy a DBAT facility, and what was that uh, process like? So I I mean I already knew that I was so I myself and the owner when we first met, uh, we set a course uh, for me to take over. Of succession. Uh, I mean, we are your normal first introduction with uh, in, in meeting with an owner or somebody in an interview is not is normally thirty minutes to an hour most. Uh, we met and it took four and a half hours. Uh, he took extensive notes on my entire life. He asked a million questions. He asked everything that you could imagine, and we both sat down and laid a course of a, of of a plan. Uh, and literally, we by the time we left that that time, we knew with the, it was going to take six months for me to coach slash do lessons slash learn the business. Uh, that first six months, then I was going to peel back from coaching when the season was over with. Then I was going to dive hundred percent into learning the business, um, and that took two years uh, to really turn the business and start driving a ton of revenue into the building, um, and then got to where I was ready to, I, I was ready to do it myself. Um, and he knew it and, and I knew it and it was an agreed upon time and it just didn't work out. Um, I mean, it, it is what it is. It, it, it's not like I lowballed him. I, I went in well over what I, what, what it was worth and he couldn't pull the trigger because of timing inside of his life, which it's, that's a personal reason that nothing else. Um, and that's okay. Uh, so then from there, uh, I'm, like I said, I went into coaching. I started coaching two weeks after that. And then within a month and a half, uh, because the owner of the entire corporation knew that I, he, he was helping me with the purchase of, the, of that facility, he called me and was like, hey, uh, you tried to buy this one, didn't work out. We've, 
there's some others that are ready to go. Uh, you can be a remote owner and you might have to go once a week, check on it uh, and try and turn it around a little bit, see what happens. And that was the goal, uh, obviously, before COVID hit and shut everything down. Um, and then, I mean, during COVID, uh, I think I still only missed uh, two weeks out of, out of the entire time that we were shut down, which was week number two. And towards the end, I missed one week. Uh, because we were coaching and I, and I couldn't get out there on a day that I'd planned on because we had rain out and makeup games. But no, I mean, I, I, it was a short turn from being a GM. Uh, I'd, like I said, I knew I was going to own, I knew I was going to own one, whether it was the Allen location um, and, or, and I bought the Mount Pleasant and we sold it and then we did the Melissa, but the Melissa was actually a plan with myself and the owner of Allen um, years ago so this was actually had already been in place uh and so once once everything got done with where we were no longer together um this this was still happening and he couldn't do it and and then it became an opportunity for me yeah so now now that you're at the the dbat the dbat facility in melissa you're the owner there what does your day-to-day life look like what's the, what are your job responsibilities as the owner Oh, everything you can imagine from paying bills to uh, calling on potential leads, trying to generate new leads, uh, doing marketing, meeting, uh, marketing, uh, PR. Uh, I mean, I'm also the janitor. I do do all the purchases. uh, I mean, I'm an instructor. I manage uh, the team. We just got to where uh, recently I, I... I'm in the process of training a new assistant to help me take over a lot of my day-to-day stuff so I can pull back and try and get to where we can scale and, and go after some more facilities and try and add to our uh, little nest egg. But yeah, I mean, I, I knew it was going to be about a six to seven month period of, of a startup and me being here entrenched every single day, getting it to where we're, we're, we're humming pretty solid. And then I could pull back a little bit to where then we could start to go after our next phase, which is the expansion. Yeah. So was that DBAP facility, Melissa, was that one already established when you bought it or was this one a startup that you built from? No, this, this is a hundred, this is a hundred percent a startup. So we're get, we're going to get to reap the rewards for the long haul um, going forward to where it's going to be a lot of fun uh, as we, as we grow. I mean, we're only in month number six right now, um, or I guess the beginning of month number seven. Uh, yeah, month we just paid uh, rent number seven. Uh, so yeah, it's it. I mean, like I said, we're all we're in month number seven. We're still here. We're still kicking. We're still growing. We're 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 in a lot of we're, we got a lot of fun to go. I've got a great team around me. Great facility that's growing. Uh, the the community's growing. I mean, I, I can't ask for a better place to be right now. And then as we look to expand, we're sh- I think we're in a really good spot. Yeah. So Melissa, Texas, is that North Texas? Yes. It's North of Dallas by uh, 45 to 55 minutes. Um, I'm trying to think most people, let's see if you've, they don't have Friday night lights for that, but the, so most people know like Allen, Allen, if you were to look up Allen football and, and see, crazy high school football stadiums in the, in, in the state, in the country. Uh, Allen, Texas is definitely up there. Uh, it's a $65 million high school football stadium. And then three miles down the road, there's another $68 million football stadium. And then right down literally 
15 minutes north, which is where I'm at right now. Uh, they're building a $40 million stadium. They've got another $30 million stadium, five minutes north of that. Uh, they've got the biggest indoor football training facility in the in the state of Texas, um, right here, less than less than a thousand yards from my building. Um, I mean, we we've we're in the we're in a mecca of sports uh, here in in it's actually Collin County uh, between Frisco, McKinney, Allen, Melissa. Uh, I mean, you've got some phenomenal cities that are still growing with a lot of potential with kids and untapped land that are they're still trying to do nothing but sports to drive yeah. everything here i mean those texas sports i mean that's built different than i believe any state in america i had so i went to texas in march went to dallas for a week or so um and i started connecting with some younger baseball guys some guys who play for the dallas tigers north texas longhorns uh, texas 12 um, i actually for the podcast i'm doing like this three-week series with guys who are uh, nothing but from texas or guys committed to texas schools and just learning from them and seeing what their day-to-day lives are as high school baseball players go into like A&M, Texas, Oklahoma. I mean, Texas baseball is definitely built different than the majority of the states in America. So it's, I mean, it's crazy. I'm really looking forward to, I'm, I'm be heading down to Texas at some point again. I'd, I mean, love to, love to tour the facility in Melissa, but man, like I said, just those ba- baseball in Texas is just built different. It seems like. Uh, yeah. I mean, so from my experience, you've got, five, you've got a, power five states that are really doing stuff completely different than everybody else uh and a lot of it's just weather permitting because you can do stuff uh that and then now the money that and facilities that are being built i mean you got california obviously uh arizona is another big hotbed uh then you go to texas then you've got florida uh and then i mean well I'll, we'll just we'll just leave it at those four uh right there i mean if you could if you could get kids out of those four states you're gonna be you're gonna talk to some kids that are probably doing some stuff differently and it's and i'll tell you this uh the majority of it's probably gonna do nothing but bliss them as an outlier um and if you've never read the book uh with malcolm gladwell i highly recommend it it's literally called the outliers uh it explains how to become a professional at anything you want to do in life. Um, my dad had me read it and it's kind of crazy how things just naturally happen. And it's all based on the timing of when you're born and what you want to do and how you go attain it. Uh, and so, I mean, how do you, how do you get to those? So how do you get to 10,000 hours? Uh, doesn't matter how you do it. It's just sheer will and grit and determination. Yeah. So it's called the outliers, like O U T L I E R S. Yep. Malcolm All right. I'm gonna, I guess after this episode, I might I might have to text you uh, to get make sure that the author's name get hit right. I'm gonna look that up. Get get that book ordered so I could give that book a listen. Uh, give that book a read. But so there's a, I've got a couple of really good baseball books that if, I mean you could probably dive into it and have a rabbit hole of, of some some different podcasts. Obviously, and this is one that's been around forever. Harvey Dorfman did uh, the Mental Game of Baseball, and then had spinoffs for ABCs of pitching, ABCs of hitting. I only wrote, read the mental game of baseball. Uh, I did it every single year spring training as a reboot to my brain to reteach myself how to do self-talk, uh, a lot of positive self-talk in there. Um, and it counts from, from Hall of Famers. Um, and then when I was with the Cardinals, we worked with a guy named Jason Selk, uh, S-E-L-K, and he had a book called 10-Minute Toughness. And 
it is a phenomenal book and he's got hall of famers he actually counts the 2011 year uh and actually prior i think he started working with the organization in either 2007 or 8 so i i was blessed to get to work with him from double a through the big leagues um and and go through his dynamic stuff like personally with him and go and see the power of visualization and understanding how how powerful it truly is to your daily routine and just seeing yourself succeed whether it's in business life uh, or sports uh seeing yourself succeed is just the first way of understanding what it's going to feel like when you actually do it so you're not shocked when shit you hit a million downloads i don't know if we're supposed to cuss but if you hit a million downloads on on your on your podcast you're not going to be shocked when it happens uh for me when i was hitting home runs off of josh beckett or chris sale i wasn't shocked it was just another day um uh in in the life and people were like you didn't you didn't pimp home runs you didn't do this you didn't do that i was like well i mean for a i also was brought up in a different era and b i i it was just another thing. I didn't want it to act like I've never done it before. Uh, I'm not saying these guys don't act like they've never done it. The moment is what it is. I'm not saying I've never been in, in the heat of the moment and done something to where I've thrown a bat differently. Yeah, I've done it once, I think once or twice. Uh, but even at that, that's not every single time uh, where the game has definitely changed and evolved and they're showing a lot more emotion, uh, which I think is good and bad at times. Yeah. Well, those three books, I'm definitely going to have to look them up, maybe get them ordered here, give all three of them a read. Um, I mean, <clears throat> obviously, you're a great salesman for those books because, I mean, I'm interested. I know people, other uh, youth baseball players will probably be interested in who's listening to this right now. Um, but besides that, Andrew, that's all I got for you um, in terms of questions. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation today. I know I gained a lot of knowledge from you. Um, like I said, I'm going to be in Texas in the fall, so – I'll give you, I'll maybe shoot you a text or something, maybe get to see the facility up in Melissa. So like I said, man, just thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, definitely. Give me a, give me a shout. Uh, give me a heads up. I'll make sure I'm here. We'll tour it. You can see the whole thing. Uh, you'll definitely get to see, it'll look differently than it is now. Not that you've seen it yet, but uh, everything I've said now, it'll be a, another sales pitch onto what we have here because the group, like I said, the group is different, but uh yeah i'm extremely humbled to uh to be on your podcast anytime uh if you have any questions on the books you want to talk about it after you've read it uh give me a holler awesome and then one last thing uh you talked about instagram twitter social media where can the listeners find you at uh i am on on all three uh so let's see on Facebook, obviously, it's just my name. My wife has done a little bit of hiding on there because she wanted to keep something somewhat, somewhat prideful or private. Uh, so on Twitter, uh, it's at am brownie. I it's am brown ie zero three uh, is where I'm at at Twitter, and then Instagram. I want to say it's almost the exact same. Give me a second. I've also got all my business pages. So yeah, my Instagram is. And Brownie uh, 03 as well. So, all right. Well, I'll make sure to tag you on everything because I've got those same three platforms as well from the podcast and my personal. So, um, when your episode drops, I believe it's going to be the end of this month, like I think May 29th, I believe the date is. Um, awesome. I'll make sure to tag you, uh, get you that social media love. And uh, like I said, just thanks for coming on the show. Would love, I, I would love to have it and, and try and help you get some more listeners as well. But, uh, and, if you need any help with anybody you're trying to get uh, that I can possibly help with, just shoot me a note as well.
And that's going to do it for another episode of the JKR podcast. I'd really like to thank Andrew for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed getting all that knowledge he had to spread. Um, he experienced a lot in his career going to play in the KBO, playing in the major leagues. Uh, I mean, like he like he mentioned uh, midway through the podcast, I mean, he really experienced everything in a major league career except for that big second contract. So it was really cool seeing every little thing that, he, that happened to him what, uh, was going through his mind. Um, it was really cool to get that type of content out there. I really enjoyed it. I um, hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, make sure to tune in next week as we've got four top prospects around the state of Indiana coming on the show. We've got Hogan Denny, Mooresville baseball player committed to IU for the class of 2024. Got Corbin Dickerson. He's from Jeffersonville but plays in Louisville at Trinity High School. Um, he is committed, well, actually signed at Louisville for the class of 2022. Uh, we got J.T. Steiner, cathedral baseball guy. Committed to Virginia Tech for the class of 2024. We also got Elijah Bennett, another Cathedral kid, uh, class of 2025, going to IU. Um, got lots of great content there, lots of great content today. Hope you guys are enjoying it. For any more updates on the podcast, go to our website and our social media. That website's going to be www.jkrpodcast.com. And then the social media is going to be jake at jkr underscore podcast. So with that being said, I'll catch you guys next week. 